Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is a podcast for sustainable fashion conversations. Whether you're a consumer or a sustainable fashion brand owner, we have a lot of resources just for you. I'm your host, Selena Ho, and I promise to support you and equip you with the knowledge to help right the harmful fashion industry. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are in for a real treat because I get to interview and sit down with Stephanie Osler. Stephanie is based out in Vancouver, and she is the founder of a Vancouver-based slow fashion brand called Devil May Wear. I actually met Stephanie a few months ago because we were both speaking at the same event, and after hearing her talk and realizing that we had a lot of the same values and perspectives and passions when it came to sustainability, I knew I had to have her on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Thank you for coming on to the podcast, Stephanie. Welcome to Recloseted Radio. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And you have a lot of different jobs, but maybe we can talk about double may wear. We can talk about, you know, what you teach at SFU and anything else you want to chat about. But yeah, do you want to get started with double may wear? Yeah, well, um, the long, long short story is that I actually started the company when I was 12. I wanted to buy guitars because I was planning to be a musician, so I couldn't get a real job, but I got my dad to give me $200 for a button press, and I started making band merchandise, and then through high school, I did a dressmaking apprenticeship, and I had the most incredible teachers who were all ex-clothing designers, and I didn't realize how lucky I was to be in the school I was in Mm -hmm. and get the kind of education I got in high school. When I graduated, uh, I wasn't really getting along with my parents as many teenagers <laughs> aren't. Yeah. And my parents weren't rich, but they made too much money for me to qualify for student loans. Okay. So I decided that I would wait till I was 25 to go back to school because then I could do it on my own terms and mm. pay for it myself. And in the meantime, I decided I'd also had enough of the job market. I've worked too many retail jobs. I did my dressmaking apprenticeship, which got me all sorts of different jobs. And I was going to just run my own company. Yeah. And launching my own company and having to rely on it for my rent from day one when I was 17 years old, uh, it really changed my life. It is, it has, it cured my almost, I'd say 90% cured my social anxiety. It's gotten me through everything. It, it really does incredible things for uh, people's autonomy and uh, their self-worth. So now I've become obsessed with educating people on entrepreneurialism at a young age. Yeah, I love it. But also through my company, I, like when I was in high school, I read Naomi Klein and I was big to Noam Chomsky and I worked with Food Not Bombs. I was a real subversive kind of punk rock kid with red (laughs) hair. And I was really into the idea of ethical business, though I thought that business owners were evil. So I always had this kind of like concept in the back of my mind that business is evil, so I'm not going to be a business owner. I'm going to be a punk rock musician. I'm going to live in a van. I'm going to busk for a living. I didn't see my path as being an entrepreneur, but the whole time that I, I did that so much more than ever make it made any music. Uh, but that sort of ethical mindset led me into an ethical business and then uh, developing my own allergies to what they were putting in fabrics mm. got me into sustainability. So oh, put all that together and now I've got a company on Gravel Island. <laughs> okay, let's take it back. So you started at 12. So what did it look like back when you were 12? 
It was a button press. Okay. It really wasn't big, but I had been the kid who uh, ran a lemonade stand every weekend yeah. of the summer, and I, I sold beads I made and plants I grew and berries I picked, and I had terrible social anxiety, and I had a lot of trouble making friends, but I found that if I hired everybody in air quotes to work for me from a young age they'd hang out with me Ooh. so I'd have them doing jobs I'd, I'd organize them to put up posters or flag cars down or collect things I had them all working for me and then I could keep them around yeah and so that kind of carried over into my company when I was 12 and I, I didn't really realize that's what I was doing but I felt very uncomfortable just going to a party and hanging out with people or something so I ran my my company making band merchandise I would put on all ages shows and I would get to know the band so then they'd, they'd hire me to make their merchandise and yeah. I'd run the door and I'd throw all my buttons my extra buttons on the counter while I was running the door and I'd make 200 bucks a night selling buttons Wow! so I paid the bands 100% of the profit so the bands all loved me so it was a great feedback loop and then yeah. I got a silk screen and I started making patches and then t-shirts yeah. and I really developed my my sort of like youth entrepreneurial mindset through that experience it was really good yeah. And I had no. no idea what I was getting into, which I think is so valuable in getting into something <laughs> new. Yeah. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs start that way. They kind of think, oh, it won't be that hard. And then yeah. you do it and you're like, oh my God, this is really tough. Yeah. Like doing payroll or remittances, or I have just horror stories about dealing with the government. Lost PSP remittances, mm. totally not my fault, mm. their fault, and having my whole bank account closed right before payday, wow. stuff like that. Just things that you can never imagine getting into. Okay. And I think that it becomes harder the more knowledge we have of these things. So ironically, you should stop listening to this podcast now and just go start a business <laughs> because by the end of the podcast, you're going to be less likely to do that. Right. So sometimes it's better to just go do something before we know what we're getting into. And by the, before you know it, you're in over your head and you've got to figure the rest of it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm a strong component of like, you can figure it out. Everything's figure figure outable. Out. But in the moment, I know even if in that example, when your bank account was closed, you must have been freaking out. Oh, I was freaking out. That's a, that's in a, in a very exciting story I occasionally tell people. Yeah. But you probably had the same thing when you were getting into your podcast. I can't imagine you knew what you would be facing doing oh, a podcast. Oh, yes, yeah, totally. I mean, your husband, we were just talking about that, but he does audio, but I had no idea either, right? Like, yeah. what kind of mic do I use? What kind of software? How do I edit? But you just figure it out. You figure yeah. it out. But if you knew how much work it was going to be and how much money it was going to cost you, <laughs> It would be hard to get started. Yeah. I would have been like, oh, I'm going to start it next year. Next I'll do year. a blog instead. Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> and you were also talking about allergies to fabrics, mm -hmm. which I found really interesting. Do you mind sharing which fabrics they were? How did you realize you were allergic to those fabrics? Yeah, I was really poorly informed at the time, so I didn't really know what was happening. When I launched my business, I was 17 or 18, and so in order to fund my business, because nobody would do that for me, nobody was giving me a loan or anything for a business plan I hadn't written, I would take contract jobs on the side, which is a really, really great thing when you're developing any sort of skill set because you get to learn through somebody else's experience. They'd have me make things that I'd never personally choose to make on my own. I remember the, the most notable thing I was working on when my allergies really flared up was a set of velvet curtains for a bar in Gastown, and it was it was enormous. I, I never even saw them up because I was underage and I and I wasn't going to the bar, and they were just huge. They they went the full length of the room on either side. Wow! And I got all these. Um, just red rashes all over my arms and my, my chest, anywhere the fabric had touched me. 
and and it would happen it would flare up every time I went to go work on the project and it started happening more and more I could feel it when I go in a dress so when I touch certain fabrics you could just feel it it would like prickle up and and I didn't know what it was, but I, I obviously realized pretty early on that, that was an allergy. I'm allergic to daisies, so I, I know what the experience of allergies is. And, and now, uh, after all my research, I know this was an antimony allergy. And so I've looked at pictures of antimony allergies, and that's what it was. And antimony is an, a carcinogen they use to make polyester spinnable. So in order to soften that for wearability, they add this into the fabric, and then it leaches out of the fabric all the time, especially when you sweat, making the worst time you could wear synthetics when you're working out. It also leaches out a lot when people are sewing with it. So we're, we're causing these allergies to rise in the people whose lives depend on these jobs around the world been tested because I'm obsessed with health and I've got very high cadmium and antimony levels in my body okay. which are very common in this industry and even with all the sustainability I implement I'm still touching things like elastic that is synthetic and has these carcinogens so I'm still accumulating the chemicals but I generally don't break out in a rash anymore right yeah okay so you discovered that you did your research and then is that you spoke about this earlier but when you started getting more into sustainability absolutely yeah yeah so my first thought when I was like 18 19 was like oh my god I'm gonna be out of a job I thought you know my life is over when yeah. when you're that age you just think that this is your whole world this is my career I can't go retrain and do something new now I've been doing this since I was a kid Luckily, the whole concept of sustainable fabrics had just sort of launched and there were a lot of businesses that were selling bamboo and soy and hemp. So I started purchasing from them, which led to me working with designers who either wanted to transition to sustainable fibers or launch with sustainable fibers. So I became heavily focused on sustainable fibers. Sometimes sustainability can be a buzzword, mm -hmm. so I focus on local first. Local is my first priority and then sustainability and utilizing what fiber is best for the situation. So like I said, we still use elastic because we make uh, underwear mm -hmm. and uh, it's very hard to get a nice elastic out of 100% natural fiber. So it's obviously often synthetic. We work with polyester lining occasionally. There's reasons that polyester can make a better lining than the nice thing about a lining in something like a coat is usually you're wearing clothing underneath it unless you're just showing up in lingerie so your your body's not usually actually touching the polyester yeah and so i focus more on that we're also such a small company that a lot of the things i'd love to get certification for we can't get certification so i just know that my tendency to care so much is the best i can offer cool Taking a step back to, I'd love to know, how did you get the name Devil May Wear? Oh my god, I, I will, I'm so honest that I am so sick of this company name. <laughs> when I picked the company name, I was still working in band merchandise, and I was about 17 or 18 years old, and it comes from the saying, Devil May Care, like you're so wild, the um. devil might care. And people will ask me if I'm a gothic clothing company, which I'm not. It's more like a Marlon Brando saying, or like, it's just like an old saying. But most people aren't familiar with that saying. And it, I really don't think it suits the company. It's not who we are. And it, it's such a weird dichotomy because it has so much brand recognition now. Like, the amount of money I'd have to pay to get this kind of brand recognition that I've established... I don't want to change it and and a lot of people are highly attracted to it because nobody else is sick of hearing it but me yeah but there is a little bit of a discrepancy between doing this natural fiber local ethical thing and having this sort of like relation to devil and and I can actually see how 
I can twist the term to be meaningful for us, yep. but it takes a lot of explanation. I would recommend be very careful with the name you pick because it'll be amazing how long you get stuck with it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I still think it's good and it's kind of a play on words and it's like eye catching. So I yeah. recently developed a new love for it. Like we've been focusing more and more on the lingerie aspect of the company as I've been narrowing our focus. I think the biggest mistake we ever made was too much diversity in the company. Mm -hmm. And if you ever want to talk about that, we don't have to talk about it on this. It's, it's more okay. of like a business proposition, but, yeah. but really narrow down your focus, your target market to the specific person, your assets to what you do best, you just really hone it in. And we had the perfect clothing company for 2006 where you needed walk by traffic, you needed variety, you needed yeah. a lot of different customers, but now everything's online, you really need to focus your market. And every time we try to drop something, we have a swell of people who freak out. But in refocusing my attention on the lingerie aspect of our company, I actually have developed this idea that the name Devil May Wear really does suit. It doesn't mm -hmm. only suit, but, but there's just this, this melding with the lingerie component, and I love that. So I think that eventually I'll, I'll have that name for the lingerie and because I can't stop myself in spite of it being a horrible idea doing all these other things, I'll just <laughs> rebrand everything else. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I had a couple business questions for you later, so this Ooh. is just a good foray, yeah. Okay, do you want to talk about your goal with Devil May Wear? Because we spoke at a UBC event a few months ago, and it was really interesting because I saw that you were visibly trying to figure out how to go about things because mm -hmm. on one hand, you want your business to be successful, you want it to scale, and you want it to make money because you're you know, producing ethical and sustainable things, you're supporting these awesome people. But on the other hand, it's like you kind of struggled with that amount of you know product, yeah. putting that stuff out there. So... Completely. What are your thoughts on that still? Is that still something you're working through? I'm, I'm always going to be working through that. And I think most clothing designers, at least in the sustainability field, will always be working through that because I'm, I'm always coming back to the question of, do we really need more things in the world? And mm -hmm. I, I make this big argument all the time that I find hilarious talking about with people that nobody needs new pants. Mm -hmm. I've never met a person in my life who actually needs new pants. The world is inundated with pants. There's pants everywhere. We're <laughs> literally overrun. We're dying yeah. under new pants. Nobody needs new pants. And to be a person who wants to have meaning with my life and to change the world and make a difference, it's, it's hard for me to sort of bring these ideas together as I create product, but it's, is it product we actually need? And on the other hand, people are still buying, they're shopping in H&M, they're shopping in places that aren't as bad. Even Lululemon may not be as bad as H&M, but it's still synthetic and made overseas. So as long as people are buying these, poor fashion options, I want to provide something that's a better option. I've hit this balance between shrinking mm -hmm. and staying around where this seems to be the size at this point in my career. I feel like we're providing a very valuable service without overwhelming the world with clothing. But the question that I've been facing a lot right now is, how are we scalable within that model? So instead of considering scalability as being growing quantity, how do we make clothing? And we've always made clothing that lasts. And then we do free minor alterations and we do a lot of free repairs on our clothing. And I've repaired underwear that's 10 years old of wow. people. It's crazy. 
but how do we sort of make a sustainable model where the clothing lasts longer and like how do we add features to the clothing that may end up giving us a better markup or you know how do we how do we deal with these issues it's a really big question but that's one of the reasons that I have decided to focus on lingerie because when it comes to underwear you really shouldn't be wearing other people's underwear oh yeah like yeah. do we I mean, it's sad I have to make that argument where people come in all the time and tell me they discovered our brand when they mm -hmm. found our underwear at Value Village and bought it and it became their favorite pair. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm so torn between like, oh my God, please don't tell me that. And I'm like really happy it led you to us. Yeah. But that's, uh, it's just, I don't, I don't like that idea. And it's the thinnest mucous membrane on your body, so it soaks all the chemicals in. It's the basis of your wardrobe. If your underwear is uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable no matter what you're wearing. Mm -hmm. So one place that I really see scalability and feel very comfortable and valued is in this underwear aspect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, we all need it. And yeah. to your point, we're wearing it for hours, like 24 hours, literally, in yeah. a day, all absolutely. day, every day, right? So it's so important, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely shocking to me what people wear under there in yeah. terms of underwear or in terms of hygiene products and I'm so excited about this whole trend of period panties I know they've changed yeah. a lot of people's lives but they're so synthetic and yeah. I, I just can't they come in asking if we make them I don't go there on that note if you're okay to share what do you use for that time of month because diva I'm, cup yeah okay, oh cool. my god it's changed my life I I remember the day I got my period, I was quite young. Yeah. I was, it was before grade five had started and I bawled my eyes out because I just, I was such a tomboy and I mm -hmm. couldn't change this. It, it was awful. But the Diva Cup, it feels like I'm yeah. not even experiencing it anymore. Yeah. And it's silicone. I still feel like with anything you use, breathability is not. Yeah. Not that always the only question, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah. It's so much better than tampons or anything else. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree. I wanted to back a little bit because you did mention working out and the polyester and it not being great. Yeah. So when you Scary. work out, what do you wear? I generally wear bamboo. Most of our clothing has a spandex content to it, but it's quite small. I found that it made the clothing last longer and longevity is such an important issue for us. I keep the spandex in there. So I do usually wear on the bottom something with about 8% spandex. On top, 100% cotton. I wear, I have a gym buddy, and she doesn't know how I can stand wearing 100% cotton. Yeah. Little tip, I find if your shirt, your 100% cotton shirt is tight, it's actually cooler than if it's loose, because if it's loose, you have room for your body to store heat between the cotton layer and your body. Oh. But if it's tight, it allows that energy to dissipate. But my big admission is I was really curious what the deal of all this Lululemon, I wanted to understand because I've yeah. never actually bought a pair of Lululemon pants or anything. Oh, wow. But Dresso has a lot of Lululemon fabric mm. that they're no longer using. So I bought a couple meters of it and I made myself some workout tights. And I, they haven't really been anything special, but... I wear them. I have. I work out. I try to go to the gym every single day of the week. Wow. So I've got about five outfits in rotation, and I and I wash them regularly. So I'm wearing synthetic about two days a week to the gym yeah. until they wear out. Cool. I mean, like you can't be perfect, but I like no. how you're approaching it and you're taking your steps. So that's helpful. Yeah, and I, I think for most people, it's important to have a balance because. It's also important to think no matter what we're doing, we're still doing 
destruction. We're still consuming of something. So even if you're wearing all natural fibers and everything is used, you're, you're still somehow using carbon to get to the store to purchase it, whether it's Value Village or not. They're still illuminating the store with a lot of power. Then you're cleaning your clothing. We're still doing damage even when we're doing the best. Mm -hmm. So I like to remind people of what they're doing right because if you constantly berate people with what they're doing wrong, it actually shuts them down from doing better. But if you, if you reward them for the steps they have taken, then they tend to take better steps, which is something I saw working in my storefront mm -hmm. when I would accost people with the negative information, they'd shut down. I, I literally on Main Street could watch them walk out of the store with a shocked look on their face and then an hour later walk by with a bag from another store and know that the store they were shopping at is not selling them something that's natural or local or sustainable or ethical. And knowing that that rather than me having convinced them that they'd be better off buying something local and sustainable, I actually stressed them out so much that they resorted to shopping to calm themselves down. Mm, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's hard because sometimes you learn about it and then you're like, oh my god, because sometimes ignorance kind of is bliss. But once you know, you just can't unknow it. You can't just, unknow. Yeah. And so I have a lot of customers in the store who've developed their own sensitivities to fabric. And it's not the hippies. It's not the people who wear natural fibers. It's not the eco-freaks. It's always the people who said, I didn't care. I ate McDonald's every day. I smoked. I wore synthetic everywhere. I couldn't care less. And one day I was in yoga class and I went into anaphylactic shock and they had to cut my yoga pants off. And that's a true story from a customer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said to her, that's an antimony allergy. And she said, how did you know what that was? And I work in this field. I've been researching. That's an antimony allergy. I have customers who I follow around the store and warn them every time they're about to touch something synthetic. And what I think it is, it's the body toxicity level. And unfortunately, we don't know what each of our toxicity levels are. But the best you can do is mitigate your own. So let's say you really love eating fried food. Then wear natural fibers, walk outdoors, exercise, don't smoke. You know, for me, honestly, my, my guilty pleasure is I love red wine. Mm. I know that I love red wine. I am a health freak, but I drink way more red wine than I think is healthy. But I know that if I do my best and I try to keep my consumption low, I ask myself if I need to drink wine tonight. I don't generally like, you know, drinking at a restaurant with dinner feels like you're just throwing money away. Or, right. you know, I can find ways to convince myself that I don't need it right now then I can sort of have my fun and be healthy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you know, we still live in a city, like we're in, inhaling carbon every time we walk down the street beside vehicles. And That's true, yeah. So you gotta be aware that even when you don't know you're making trade-offs, you're making trade-offs. Yeah, oh my gosh. I, I hadn't actually thought about body toxicity levels until now, and now I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, we're <laughs> in a retail store where you sell sustainable clothing, especially underwear, and people tell you everything. We have people contacting us from all over the world saying, these are my issues, how can you help me? And often because we're still using elastic to keep your underwear on, we can't. A lot of people can only use a drawstring in their clothing because everything has to be 100% natural, unbleached, undyed. It's crazy the levels of some people's allergies. Oh, wow. It's okay. really, really heartbreaking. And all I can say to everybody who doesn't have an allergy is appreciate not having that allergy and take care of yourself so you don't. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Very helpful. I wanted to switch gears a little bit, talk about your production, because I think we're in a really cool movement where people are asking brands, you know, who made my clothes, mm -hmm. you know, where all of that is coming from. So would love to hear where your clothes is made, who makes them, all that stuff. You're going to be surprised because I don't think you know this. Okay. Maybe you do. I make everything. 
No, I I thought you said you made some of it. I didn't realize you made everything. We make about 95% of the stuff in the store, so we carry a couple things that we don't have the capacity to make, such as jeans. They just take different machines. People want different washes. We could do a trouser, but to do a jean and that kind of pairs with our aesthetic, we don't have that skill set. So we do carry silver denim. We also carry like just a couple accessories that aren't made by us. And we occasionally carry designers here and there, but at least 95% of what's in the store is made by me. Yeah. I'm like shocked right now. Yeah. I have my staff do little things. You know, I have to give my staff credit though for like when the underwear gets finished, I don't clip it. So it comes with threads. If you walk in the store on a good day, you'll just see what they call underwear boas. They're just like big strings of underwear all (laughs) sewn together. And then my staff clip them. And it's amazing how long the clipping process takes. We used to have a store on Main Street that was about 1,500 square feet. And we had the sewing in the back and we had the retail in the front. And we would make sort of a game out of whether the staff could clip and pack the tights faster than I could sew them. And it was a really fun little game. Yeah. Usually we were about equal. Yeah. yeah. So they do, they, there's a lot of impact on, on reducing the workload on me. Yeah. Uh, but since it's things like clipping or tagging or receiving, it's, it's not the work that necessarily gets recognized, but it definitely goes into finishing the product. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay, well, now that I know you're making all the garments, plus you're, like, teaching, plus you have a million other things going on, do you sleep? Like, how do you manage I really this? value sleep. I need okay. to sleep about nine hours a night, and I'm really into lucid dreaming, okay. which I highly recommend everybody yeah. does. And I won't go into depth about lucid dreaming, but I'll say I got into it because I wanted a holiday. Oh. So I figured instead of actually taking a break in life, I could learn to go to the beach in my dreams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lisa Dreaming turned out to be way more interesting than that, and yeah. I don't go to the beach in my dreams. Yeah. But I work full time, and as you can see, I'm knitting a sweater for the store right in front of you. Oh, cool! Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm so, always working, but yeah. but I think it's critical to do something you're passionate about because, for one, it's the only way you will ever gain skills fast enough to to be a master at your craft mm-hmm. is having a passion for what you're doing to begin with. I I don't know. I just no money in the world is worth not being passionate about what I do. I've worked with a lot of startups in different fields and I love startups because they're all about creating a new energy but I have found that I have to be careful about what startup I choose to work with because if it's something I'm not passionate about I can't give them my all. Mm -hmm. If it's something that I'm enthusiastic about they'll be getting calls from me at like four in the morning being like oh my god (laughs) I just thought of this we ought to do that like I'm, I'm up all night I'm gonna like scramble and yeah. Yeah. You've got to be passionate about what you do. Totally. Yeah. On that note, do you have any like efficiency or productivity tips? How do you manage your time? How do you make time for self-care? I guess you're sleeping a lot, but... I'm really bad at self-care, though I'm into sleeping. Yeah. Like, I'm really, really bad at self-care. I think one of my best tips, which is... It might be a little bit of a bypassing strategy that I don't necessarily recommend to everybody, but I get a lot of anxiety. I'm a high anxiety person. And the only way I deal with anxiety in the face of having to do work is to just literally not think about it and just show up. My calendar is so scheduled. I have things scheduled at the minute. I usually have like four meetings a day. And then around my schedule, I have to make things for the store. So I'll try to schedule mm-hmm. my meetings early in the morning and then later in the evening if I can. And then sew during the middle of the day. And, and 
a lot of the things that I have to do just give me high anxiety. It's funny, coming here, I even thought about, I used to have such bad anxiety when people would interview me, like I'd be shaking and mm. it was scary. And just from exposure of being interviewed so much, I, I wasn't nervous at all coming here. But, yeah. you know, teaching my class, if I overthink it, if I think about yeah. it too much, it gives me a lot of anxiety. So I choose, yeah. I just don't honestly think about the class. I I design the the material for the class and I focus on that and I practice it and practice it with my co-instructor. And I don't actually imagine showing up to class until I'm in the classroom. Very cool. And then speaking of that, what do you teach? What's that like? It's a really, really cool course. It's called, well, the, yeah, it had a brand change recently. It's called Make Change Studio, which is a really nice name for it. It is a business and design course through the lens of textile sustainability. Love it. And I co-teach it with Emily Smith who has a website called Random Acts of Making, and she is just brilliant, and she is really in the field of teaching, and she and I, I've always felt like she's my doppelganger, she's like my twin, and we really wanted to do a project together for a while, and the biggest difference we had is we had the same interests, but I like making it and selling it, Mm -hmm. and she likes teaching it. So we've come together and she's sort of the, the not-for-profit design teaching aspect of the course and I'm the business entrepreneurial go out there and get it done and do it, launch yourself aspect. Yep. So we're a really nice balance in the class. We really trade off each other well. I would not have ever figured out the administration aspect if it wasn't for her help. It is <laughs> yeah. so tough. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There are sustainable fashion founders that listen to the podcast, which is awesome. Cool. So do you have any like general tips or things like that that you've learned through your brand or through teaching and mentoring other brands that you wanted to share? For sustainability? Mm-hmm. Oh my god. I overthink it often. I remember at the UBC event we both met at, somebody asked me how to double check greenwashing and I I sort of got frozen on that because I kind of have this opinion that anytime you're talking about sustainability and marketing Mm -hmm. your company you're greenwashing like Mm -hmm. that's just the truth but how do I remedy that with giving people the information they need to make better decisions I I really haven't wrapped my brain around that I think that just constantly being curious and educating yourself is one of the best things you can do and sometimes you have to trick yourself into being interested in something so Mm -hmm. I listen to podcasts and talks and lectures all day. I'm just absolutely obsessed with learning. But sometimes there's things that I care a little less to learn about, and I sort of have to find a way to convince myself that I want to learn it anyways. But we live in a time where information is at your fingertips, and you really have no excuse not to be educating all the time. You just have to find a format that works for you. It's the same with working out. If, Mm -hmm. If going to the gym doesn't work for you, then go for a run. If that doesn't work for you, go swimming. Find something that works. You need to. You owe it to yourself. And so for me, because I'm always working with my hands all day, reading's really hard. I can't hold a book open. So audiobooks. Mm. Yeah, they really help me a lot. Okay. Um, but a couple things. If, if you haven't heard of Fibershed, Rebecca Burgess, I highly recommend get into her work. She gives you a whole new world of sustainability that we're not usually focused on as quote-unquote sustainability experts. Mm -hmm. She's talking about carbon sequestration through our farming practices, utilizing the fiber that we have on the animals that are already on the farms that we're actually currently disposing of. 
she reveals how we lack the manufacturing capacity that we had actually not that long ago when I was in about grade six I toured a textile factory here that was making oh, textiles cool. I'm 34 years old for perspective so I was about 12 years old and they didn't seem to have any concept that their business was shutting down anytime soon when we toured. I, I have very vivid memories of having my questions answered and them showing us their their swatch books and how you'd order fabric. But it must have been a couple of years later they shut down. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. We used to have a really good textile industry in Vancouver. Yeah. And we've lost our manufacturing capacity. So if we really want to talk about sustainability, because I don't really believe in sustainability if it's not local it can still be a really good step and so we're also importing our fabric from china we used to have it all made in canada but the factory shut down mm -hmm. but we're using a lot of fabric made overseas now which breaks my heart because you're still using a lot of co2 in order to get that product to where it needs to be yeah. uh, regardless of where it's being made and I think that we have the capacity to be serving our own community, to grow our own food, to grow our own fiber. And I've never been against things made overseas, which I even say in my TED talk, I'm, I'm not against things made overseas, but I think that they should only be things that are precious and special and things we can't get here. It's absolutely psychotic to me that we're shipping cookies from from England mm. and buying them here. Like it's insane, share the recipe, make them here. We have to get off this I don't know, maybe it's, I might be wrong, but it might be the ownership of ideas. Mm. Because if we made this information public, if all my patterns were public, could you make them if you lived in Florida? Or, or could we make the cookies here? I don't, I don't know, that might not be the answer, but it's certainly a worthy uh, thought exercise. And totally. I'm all about absurd solutions. It's actually the project my class is working on right now is coming yeah. up with absurd solutions. You know, I bought a bottle of wine, it was so delicious, but when I turned it over, and I should have turned it over sooner, it was, it was grapes, I believe they were from France. They were imported to New Zealand to be bottled, and then it was being sold in a liquor store in Vancouver. Wow. And I just loved the label, and I was in a rush, and I was meeting a friend, and it was a great bottle of wine, but how flippin' heartbreaking is that? That is yeah. so unnecessary that bottle of wine I did buy from the import section but I typically buy wine that is locally grown and produced yeah and so many of my friends complain about the local wine and this and that and you should you know they only want an old vine or they you know that whatever their their specialty is but are we really that spoiled that we need to be importing wine from France that should be a special occasion thing that mm -hmm. shouldn't be your everyday bottle of wine yeah that's psychotic yeah I think also we're in the day and age of like Amazon priming everything and expecting oh. everything to show up so quickly and I think we just don't realize the effect of co2 and how harmful yep. that is yeah I have a real problem with online shopping and it starts with you're not developing a relationship with the items you're ordering online and I'm sure there are exceptions but when you go into a store you're not only just picking a garment but you're you're picking the one of the many you get to feel it and try it 
and 80% of the garments we sell in the store are items we're recommending to customers once they're in the change room. It's actually not what they brought in the change room to begin with, which we can't do online. Mm -hmm. So you don't know that you're buying the best possible garment for you online. You don't know if the fit is appropriate. Then we get into the shipping and everything's being packaged. So for a company like us that's making it locally, we are importing that fabric, which comes wrapped up in sort of like a, I don't know what that stuff's called, but I'm buying it forever. Are they like poly bags or no? I guess, yeah. No. But I mean, it is synthetic. But the yeah. fabric comes wrapped up, and and that is the time that it. And usually, they're because we'll order them fifty meters at a time. It's the way it came wrapped from the factory. But once we open it up and break it down into clothing, it doesn't get packaged again. And you're sell, you're buying it local. You're walking into the store. I usually walk all the garments from my house, which is a live workspace, to the store along the seawall. I'm so spoiled. But it usually doesn't get packaged one more time until it goes to your house if you've packaged it even then. But if you're ordering from me online, then I have to put it in plastic because we live in a very wet climate. And then it goes into a box and then it's wrapped in tape and then it goes on a truck. And God forbid somebody want to send it back because they're going to unpackage it. They're going to throw out that packaging. They're going to try it, decide they want to return it get new packaging for it to be returned in, more CO2 coming back, and then more CO2 shipping you a new product. I am so, oh my, my skin just crawls with the way we treat online sales. I'm having such a hard time convincing myself that it's somewhere my brand needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's really bothering me. And, and on one hand, we have to enter that space in order to remain relevant at all because I find the majority of our online sales are actually locals. They're people who saw us oh. in the store and they order it and get it shipped, you know, 15 minutes from the store. Oh, wow. And it, the vast majority of our, our, our products are being shipped to locals. So I understand that if we're not available, are we going to be in business? But I really want to ask people, do you need to do this? Do you honestly need this pair of pants? I will tell my customers not to buy things yeah. all the time. It's a horrible business model, but I tell people all the time, do you need this? If it's going to do something for your life, it's going to make your whole wardrobe look new again. If it is something you're going to wear for life and then you want to wear that jacket you have with it and everything comes together, then buy it and take care of it. But come into the store and buy it and and choose it like you choose a puppy. Like, do people order puppies online? No. It's so weird. Oh, I just, oh, it makes my skin crawl. But there we are. We're selling things online. That's, that's, That's what we've come to. And I was going to touch on that because you are in a unique position where you have a brick and mortar store in Vancouver and you have online, Yeah. but it, it's kind of heartbreaking, but our clothing industry, and I would say in general, things are moving online. And yeah. so to survive, quote unquote survive, you do kind of need to go into that space as you yeah. were alluding to. So for slow fashion brands who are just starting out and maybe can't afford rent either because that's expensive, so they have to sell online. What would you recommend? Because I know there are some like better shipping and packaging places yeah. now. So. so the first thing I'd honestly recommend is you need to be face-to-face with your customer, which is extremely hard when you're taking responsibility for the design. It's hard to sell your own product. It's hard to put yourself out there emotionally, but you have to do that. So if you can do Portobello West, uh, if you can get a booth at a craft fair, anything you can do, you can do house calls, you can do parties, events, partner with a retail store that already exists. Anything you can do to get face to face with your customer is the first thing you should be doing before you ever sell a single thing online. I'm a huge believer in that. And most of our best product development has come out of working directly with our customers, which is why I think it's so important that we have a store. But 
if you are going to be selling online, Etsy's an option. Mm -hmm. I'm actually moving very largely away from Etsy and I want to warn people about Etsy. Okay. We don't sell on Etsy anymore. We have an account on there and the only reason we actually have an account is so nobody takes our company name on there. But the fees are very high to begin with and nobody on there is your customer. Ask anybody who's ever ordered anything off of Etsy. When somebody orders something from us on Etsy, they don't say, oh, I bought this from Devil May Wear. They say, I bought it from Etsy. Mm. They're not your customer, so you've really done nothing to further your brand. So a lot of people talk about how being on Etsy brings them the customers right away, and so they don't have to develop that market or pay for that exposure. But I think that the risks, uh, Etsy's had some really shady stories in the news over the past little while, that, that's risky. Also, you're actually not investing anything in your business. I think it's time quite wasted and money wasted because to me, Etsy's actually more expensive than having a brick and mortar location. If you add up the costs, it's much more expensive than having a store. I would recommend, as expensive as it is, have a Shopify store or something to that equivalent. Be building your own client base, which sounds difficult and expensive, but it is. And I want to remind everybody that it's not a right to be a business owner. It's a privilege, and it's a privilege I encourage everybody to have. But you need to be building your own market. If there are free foot traffic just coming to you because there is another company exposing you, you don't own that traffic. Mm -hmm and you can't rely on that traffic, and it can disappear at any time. So be doing the events, be getting in, in front of your clients. If you can't draw people to your company, and I'm gonna be really harsh about this, then your product isn't worth selling. And that's not to say stop selling it, but that means that you've discovered something. That means you've failed forward, you've mm -hmm. learned, and now it's time to redevelop. Unfortunately, whether we like it or not, we live in a system where the market prevails and if there's no demand for your product, it's not going to pay the bills. That's just how it is. I constantly talk about how people would have the most fabulous clothing if we could get the money thing out of this. I could make them incredible things. Mm -hmm. But because I'm so beholden to this money and bills situation, I'm most often making things I don't want to make the most. I don't make anything I don't want to make, but it may not be the first thing I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. That's also an incredible challenge, an empowering challenge. And it also means that everyone else has the same limitations you do. So you're no more disadvantaged than anybody else out there. You just have to problem solve better than the rest. Mm -hmm. If you want to succeed, learn to problem solve. So I love that. I hope that's good advice. No, I love it. And it's, it's so true. Like, I think that running a business is a privilege, to your point. Absolutely. And that's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. And I think it's something that people often forget. I also, by the way, don't believe the customer is always right. I just want to put that out there <laughs> while I'm like berating business yeah, owners, yeah, like yeah. own that one too. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can say that because if the customer was always right, I'd have a lot of very disappointed customers when they tell me what they want. Mm. They want a woven dress that's fitted with no seams or zippers. And I'm like, great, I can just weave this garment onto your body and you'll never be able to move or take it off. It'll just be on you forever. It'll be on you forever. <laughs> and it will cost thousands of dollars because that's going to be insanely time consuming or the amount of times that people have asked me to alter things so tight that they will explode and I have to say absolutely not I will not do this because the minute you eat or sit down this garment is coming right off of you yeah the customer is not always right but the customer must always be happy mm, that's the trade-off that's the key yeah absolutely and how do you differentiate then between useful customer feedback and ones that you, you know, you're going to listen to and kind of slip out into the other ear? To be honest, yeah. 
I think I do a horrible job at it. And I'm really actually quite proud of this. It's this mm-hmm. funny that you asked this question. I'm constantly annoyed at people for giving me feedback and advice. Like I'm an artist. <laughs> that's what I am. This is my artwork. I don't need your feedback. But the fact of the matter is I receive it, I hear it, and it goes in, in my subconscious. And it becomes a part of what we make. So often the things that I didn't think were possible that people have told me they want end up actually being the next thing that I create. So let's say, for example, the pocket panties we make. They're extremely popular, but they came out of this idea that women's clothing doesn't have any pockets or they're not deep enough and it's supposed to be sexist. The honest truth is it's expensive to put pockets in things. That's the truth. That's why there's no pockets in women's clothing. Because if they want to sell you a dress for $20, they need to cut every corner they possibly can. It's not because they think that you don't need places to put things. They want to sell you a dress. They know you'll buy it if it's 20 bucks. If it's 25, it has pockets and you'll, you'll walk away. So we just decided because these bottom line questions don't affect us as much as a large company, when you're making 10,000 units of something, pennies can turn into thousands of dollars quickly. Whereas when we make 20 of something, it's not really a big issue. Mm-hmm. So I started putting pockets on everything we possibly could. We just put pockets <laughs> on everything as long as it didn't compromise the fit or the function of the garment. Yeah. And that led to the pocket underwear. So one day I'm sitting at home and sewing the pocket underwear and I'm like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. This underwear is ridiculous. We're trying to be a serious company. I'm way too often making silly things because I love to entertain myself. And I almost didn't put it in the store. I almost scrapped it right then and there. But luckily I finished it and it went to the store and it's so popular and it's been changing lives and nobody thinks it's silly. We have tourists who buy it. You can fit your passport in it. Unfortunately, you can fit your cell phone in it, which I highly recommend against. Don't do that. We have a a customer who has diabetes and she has an apparatus that she puts in the pocket and she Mm -hmm. says it changed her life. It's amazing. It's kind of like the invention of electricity. When electricity was invented, we actually didn't know what it would be used for, like the telephone. We didn't know most inventions. We don't actually know what the purpose is, but you create it and then let your customers decide. So that's been really fascinating. There's another one. It's actually one of my staff members. I have a really great store manager. Her name's Erin, and I have to give her so much credit for all the work she does. I sometimes feel like I create paint and then she puts it on the canvas. Mm -hmm. It's really great. But we're quite different personalities, which I think is extremely important in business. Don't hire people who are like you. Hire people who are extremely different than you. And so one day she's talking about scarves, scarves. This is my scarf. This is what I do with it. And to be honest, I'm like, I couldn't care less about what you do with your scarf. (laughs) And my my self-talk is going, listen to this person. She's telling you something that's very meaningful to her. You need to be present with her. Like, just be there for her. Who cares what the content is? And this is something we should always be reminding ourselves when we're rolling our eyes at our partners or our siblings or our friends for sharing stuff we don't care about. But in that moment, as she's telling me about scarves and I'm really, really working to be present, I just have this aha moment. And I'm like, oh my God, we need to make circle scarves. And we made these circle scarves totally inspired by this conversation I did not want to have with this brilliant person. And they sold extremely well. People loved them. They're wonderful. You don't lose them when the the ends are attached to each other. There's a thousand ways to wear them. It's not always the feedback that I want to hear that gives me the bright ideas. It's actually usually the feedback I couldn't care less about that becomes the most brilliant response. We canceled the style. We've actually replaced it with some new styles, but, but there was a style of underwear 
people wanted them to be seamless, have no elastic, be fitted, all these. And I just thought that we can't do that. And then I came up with underwear that, that fit all of those <laughs> parameters, which we've replaced now with people I notice have trouble buying items as a gift because you mm. don't know what size the other person is. Often you don't want to be judgmental of their size. Sometimes you want to give them a large and not because they are a large, but just you know that they'll probably like the function of the clothing better in that size, but it has the tag large in it. Mm -hmm. Or you want to give them a small, but actually some people are really self-conscious about being given a small. I've had this response from men who say, I can't give my wife a small. She'll think that I'm just being nice. She won't try it. She won't like it. Oh, it's wow. very weird. It goes in all directions. Wow. Medium's comfortable for everyone. Everyone loves medium. But we made this underwear called the cage panties. They take forever to make, but the brilliance of them is there's uh, 14 inches of elastic on slides on either side of the underwear that can go down as small as about, I would say on either side, it could go as small as two inches. We, there, it's slightly different between sizes, so I won't be specific about how much it goes up or down. But you can change about three sizes from the base size of that size of underwear. Wow. So not only does this mean that people can buy a gift for somebody not knowing their size and give them whatever they want, it means that if you want to have less fabric, if you want something a little more sexy, go down to the small, loosen the elastic. You have tons of elastic. It's mm -hmm. super sexy underwear. Also, if you have a really curvy body, so like my waist is the same size around as either one of my thighs, I'm just like... I'm, I'm like a soccer body, but I never had the advantage of playing soccer. <laughs> then I can make the top elastic super, super tight and make the elastic more close to my thighs a lot looser. And that's much more comfortable for my body. We change. They're great for maternity underwear. Mm. And then they're sexy underwear when you're not maternity anymore. Like mm. they're just brilliant. And it came out of this issue that nobody can pick a size. Yeah. Wow, I love that. You're so, I feel like you're so innovative. Do you just come I up feel, with this in your head? Like, I is this like in the shower or like? I don't know where I come up with it, but I'm like so proud of my ideas. I'll tell you another one. I feel, I'm like, I'm a mad scientist about inventions and yeah. it, it 100% comes out of the fact that I have a store and I'm trying to solve my, mm. my customers' problems. Yeah. And again, I want to reinforce, it's usually the problems that I couldn't care less about or that I don't want to hear that end up really, really getting into me. I made two top suspenders a couple of years ago and I love them. They are so cute. They're so my style, just that little like dapper twist on something super feminine. Yeah. But the problem we were having is we, we sold a lot of tube tops. I, I don't know why we sell so many tube tops, but we sold a lot of tube tops. But we were still getting the feedback from a lot of people that they love tube tops, but they always fall down. Try wearing a tube top biking or whatever. And we also really liked the cut, that straight across the chest sort of aesthetic. Yeah. You want to capture that. So how do you make this a garment that works as a layering piece that stays up, stays in place? One day I wore to the store a pair of suspenders attached to my pants with a tube top underneath. Oh. And I safety pinned it, the tube top from behind to the suspenders, so you couldn't see the safety pins. Yeah. And it was super cute. Like, who doesn't love suspenders? Totally. It was adorable. And it stayed up all day. Yeah. And I thought, if there was a product, because I can't really sell people suspenders and safety pins. Like, that just doesn't really <laughs> translate. Yeah. But instead, I made these very short suspenders. And what they look like is children's suspenders. So anytime anyone comes across them in the store, we actually have to explain them. But they hold your tube top up. They also hold strapless dresses up or anything else you want. I've got an off-the-shoulder shirt from a brand, a friend of mine. She owns Texture in Bellingham. Fabulous clothing. 
she made this off the shoulder shirt I was in love with, but it just wasn't staying up enough. So tube top suspenders. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love it. I feel like such a brilliant in inventor and they're so, this is why I was like pocket panties, they're silly. We're running a serious <laughs> company because constantly I come up with these things and I'm like, oh my God, this is so silly. Yeah. Everyone's going to laugh. They're going to think we're not a serious company. We're a joke. But if you could be in my class and see the projects I miss oh students God. in the oh combination, God, it to totally come. makes sense. I totally miss school. I was just saying, oh my God, I'd love to. Okay, in the interest of time, I have yep. one last question for you. I'm really curious how you deal with inventory. Like, it's something my <gasps> clients struggle with all the time because it's like, how much do I buy of this material? Should I do made-to-order? Oh, Should I do, like, pre-purchase? And you don't want to sit on all this stuff that's yep. not selling and then discount it because that's horrible too. So I am a big believer that you are in a, the best position to be in an in-stock position, which is a term most business owners know, to have something on hand to sell for so many reasons because I find often business owners want to sell something, but they have nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. I really believe on being on an in-stock position. I also actually really believe in selling whatever you make, and that can be sample sales or whatever. It doesn't have to be sort of like a qualified retail experience, but, but to sell everything and, and constantly be re reiterating. So if all you're ever doing is custom and design work, you're actually kind of missing the boat on that opportunity to to discover through your creation and design, even if that means you're outsourcing the, the sewing to somebody else. We control the inventory of our product, which is still not a perfect system, through Lightspeed. Okay. And that's a POS system. What I love about it is it integrates with our online store because it's a full-time job to double count stock to make sure we have what we say we have online without disappointing people and canceling sales all the time. And we've got a very busy store, so things sell really quickly. We've got a lot of one-off pieces or one of 10, and it can be very hard to, to bring both of those together. For my, my stock inventory, I would say I have way too much stock. One of the best ways to control how much raw material you have is coming back to the narrow down your focus. Mm. So again, the biggest mistake I ever made was the diversity because it means I'm also a jewelry designer. So I've got about $5,000 in things like Swarovski crystals and uh, moissanite gems and uh, chain and all and, and then I have the tools and then I need the space and then I need the storage like it's ludicrous so lingerie one of the reasons I started it is it doesn't take up a lot of space for your inventory but then I got into clothing and, and now we do outerwear so now I've got bolts of Milton wool that was made for the equestrian industry in Canada that I'm storing for next winter and then I've got lingerie fabric and I just ordered five thousand dollars worth of elastic that is it just it, it's the most densely packed elastic I'm going to put this on Instagram soon because it was oh just my God. incredible the way it got shipped it was so cool it's like so awesome. I won't go into detail. I'm already I'm rambling. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the things I get obsessed about are weird. But now I have the elastic and, and I have I have 30,000 garter stays. And those are the, the things on your garter belt that keep your thigh highs up. I have 30,000 of them because I needed to buy them in bulk. Oh Every time God. I buy elastic, I have to buy yeah. a thousand meters of each color and style of elastic. Just narrow down your focus. It, you, if you make one product, you make it really, really well, you don't end up overstocking your materials. So that's another reason that we're cutting things from the line. Things people like, we're just cutting them everywhere. I think that one thing when you're a creative person is you constantly want to get more supplies because it's very inspiring. Yeah. And I think it's really important to use what you've got. I, I'm very committed to that. 
I do this with clothing too. Wear what you've got, be committed to your purchases, to your decisions, because it actually teaches you to make better decisions. So I may order a bolt of fabric that, that I don't end up using for three weeks. And then three weeks later, I look at it and I go, I'm not inspired by it anymore. Mm-hmm. I force myself to, to come up with the garments that will make this fabric beautiful again because if I can just dispose of that and if all we're doing collectively as clothing designers are getting rid of things we're no longer interested in that no longer inspire us not only are we losing the opportunity to push our creative design Mm -hmm. uh, we're being wasteful and we're also not holding ourselves accountable to the decisions we make so I think those are some some quick tips for people but I could go on I could go on about anything Awesome. It's my favorite stuff. I know, I can tell. Um, okay, any last words of advice for sustainable fashion founders and also for consumers? I know that's like a very big topic. It but... is such a broad, that's such a broad question, but actually, yes. I One thing we didn't talk about that's become my new passion is self-worth. Mm. Because I think that everything we do is a reflection of how we see ourselves. So there's this great quote that is, you know, my poor staff, the things I subject them to. But we've got just a behind-the-scenes staff page where we communicate. And it says, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. And I 100% believe it. Where one of the things that overconsumption is reflecting to us is actually our own self-worth. And I think that the damage we do to the environment is actually a, a cry for help from humanity. And I think that no matter how much information you have or how well-meaning you are, if you don't work on your own self-worth and and really reflect on what's going on inside your own subconscious and choose what information is in your subconscious, you're going to have a moment of weakness. And we all do. We all have a moment where we say, well, I really love these pair of shoes. They're so cute. I don't really care where they're made. I'm going to wear them forever. I love them. I love them. I love them. And we buy them. And, and maybe they are the most wonderful pair of shoes and you love them, love them, love them. And most times you actually look and go, did I really need that? Right. So I think that the moral of the story is to really work on our self-worth and really recognize that what we are doing to people, the planet, anything else we do onto ourselves. It is us. But then to make our purchasing decisions around what is meaningful to us. Mm. So conversely, what is meaningful to you might be that pair of shoes. It might be that pair you love, you love, you love, you're going to wear them forever. And to really get into, you know, triggers aren't necessarily a, always a negative. You can be positively triggered as well when you're triggered to love something or, or be attached to something or, or when you have that high. Really go in there and and discover what it is that is attracting you to this thing and and if it's if it's still a yes then do it and use everything use the materials you've bought use the clothing you've bought use the food you've bought don't have any waste really be committed to the the decisions you've made in the past because it will inform you to make better decisions in the future i hope that makes sense i've become really obsessed with this idea recently no, I think it makes sense, and it's so important to your point to take responsibility of our actions and what we did previously so we can improve. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing, where I may not be inspired by that bolt of fabric anymore. It's that problem solving and that self-discovery and that challenge that actually makes life worth living, and it's really ridiculous, but your life is going to have less value if things are so disposable. If it's easy to just say, I'll get a new bolt of fabric, I'll throw out that cauliflower and buy something new for lunch, you actually don't value your life as much as you would if you learn to get creative. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. Yeah. It's a great place to end, I feel like. Yay. And if people want to find you and follow Devil May, where, what's your links, your handles? I'll have so, them down below too, but. The, the only social media that I actually enjoy doing is Instagram. Yeah. So Devil May Wear on Instagram. Luckily, because um, I've had the name Devil May Wear for so long, we kind of own everything. Yeah. So our website is being rebuilt right now. What's on it is extremely old. Please don't judge me for the website, but it's www.devilmaywear.ca. And we're also having a DNS forwarding issue, so you have to put the www first. Mm. Super weird. I don't know enough about computers, but I'm struggling to figure it out. Um, I'm Devil May Wear at Gmail. You can reach out to me anytime. You can come to our store on Granville Island in the Netloft. Yes. Devil May Wear. Walk right into it. Any way that you find me, you're welcome to friend me on Facebook or find me on LinkedIn. I know our Facebook is Devil May Wear Store because I took Devil May Wear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but that was like 15 years ago I made that decision. Just Devil May Wear. Just search Devil May Wear. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I learned so much. I know everyone else is going to too, so this was awesome. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And that was this week's episode with Stephanie. If you learned a lot in this episode and you enjoyed it, make sure you take a screenshot of yourself listening to this episode and upload it to your Instagram stories and tag us at Recloseted and also tag Stephanie at Devil May Wear. If you haven't already, also make sure you subscribe to our podcast so that new episodes are automatically downloaded every time they are released. Lastly, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a positive rating and review if you think we deserve it. That helps us get found and then we can really help further our sustainable fashion message. Thanks for listening and together, let's write the harmful fashion industry.